Hey, what's up, everyone? You are on the Eden Podcast, and we are so glad that you're here. I hope that the next 30 minutes will help you to become the person that God always dreamed you could be. Let's get started. Well, hey, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online. It is so good to have you. For those of you who are part of the Eden family, I want to give a special shout out to you for continuing to be the church in the midst of all this stuff that's happening in our world today, um, all of the challenges that we're facing. We have seen over the last two and a half months our church step into our community like we've never seen before. And I am so, so grateful for you for being committed to being the church and living on mission. It is a gift. I want to Give a special shout out to those of you who are joining us for the very first time. We are so grateful that you're here with us this morning for our church at home experience. And I just want to thank you for having the courage to step into an environment like this for the first time. We know that it's not easy, but we do hope that you walk away with value being added to your life. My name is Daniel. I'm the lead pastor here at Eden Church, and we are all about helping people become all that God dreamed they could be. And as you begin to engage with our community more and more, what you'll notice is that so much of what we do is geared to helping you take a next step in your life. But more importantly, we want to help you take a next step in your faith. Today, we're continuing a series that we started a few weeks ago called Good News. And I know that as you hear the title of this series, it sounds so antithetical to the reality that we're living in. Because we are living in a world right now where there is so much bad news. And if you would have asked me a few months ago if we could have ever, if I would have ever imagined a scenario where every church building was going to be empty, I would have told you no. And then we had coronavirus, this global pandemic. And on so many levels, that was such a horrible experience. And we're still in the middle of it. But I really think that this last week, compared to the previous eight weeks has been the hardest week that people in our country have faced because of all of the tension, the racial tension that we are experiencing in our nation. And so when we talk about this series that we are calling Good News, it is not an attempt on our part to ignore all of the bad news that we see happening in our world, but it is an attempt to change the narrative to remind ourselves that the bad news is not the greatest truth that we live with, but that there is a greater truth. And that truth is that with God, we are not without hope. Our future is full of hope. And I think that so many of us need to be reminded of that reality and of the good news, because if we ever lose hope for the future, we will stop fighting the injustice that is all around us. I know that today, if you have been engaged in any part of the news or if you've been on social media, you are directly aware of the African-American racial injustice conversation that is happening in our world today. And I know that there are a lot of you, like myself, that have been asking the questions, what do we do in response to what we're seeing? What do we do in response to the heartache and the pain and the anger that we are seeing all over our screens. And so today we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about how do we respond to injustice in our world. And more specifically, what we're gonna talk about is how do we respond to the injustice involving racism toward people of African-American descent. And so we're gonna talk about that today 
And I just hope that as we continue the conversation, that as much as we can, we would maintain a spirit of unity as we talk about things that I know affect us all in very different ways. And so this morning, as we get started, I'm going to pray for our time together. Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you would send to us a perfect example of the way that life could be lived, modeled in your son, Jesus. And Father, I know that we are living in a world right now where there is so much pain, so much hurt, so much confusion, so much adversity. And God, we are praying that in the midst of all of this, you would allow for the church to stand up, that you would allow for the church to be the greatest cultural influencer in this generation. God, that you, your voice would be declared from your community into the world. And God, not that we would just speak truth, but that we would live truth, that we wouldn't just talk about change, but that we would be willing to make change. God, as we begin to share ideas and engage in a hard conversation, Lord, would you give our people in this community a sense of unity throughout it all? God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so today, we're going to be picking up in the book of Acts, which is what we've been studying over the last several weeks. And the book of Acts is really the story of how the early church changed the world with good news. And it was written by a guy named Luke. And as we begin to study the details of this movement, we see that part of why the early church was so powerful is because of their message, that their message was a message of hope for the future, hope for every life. And so uh, we're going to continue in the conversation this morning, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some, some of the Sadducees. And these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. And so they arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. So Peter and John were speaking hope over a community of people that played this huge role in this horrible, horrible incident. They were part of the group of people that led and chose to send Jesus to his death, to his unjust murder. And they were really given this amazing opportunity where they could have brought justice in this moment, but instead they allowed for their cultural lens to guide their morality, and they willingly chose to send an innocent man to death. And I think that what this community of people were experiencing was a sense of shame and guilt for what they had done. Now, it was probably the shame and guilt that you have, but nobody wants to talk about it. We all know that it's there. We all feel the weight of it. We all see it happening. We all experience the effects of it, but nobody wants to talk about it. And it was this horrible, dark moment in human history. And it was epicentered in this community. The epicenter was in this community of people who were part of that decision. But I am so thankful for their sake and for ours that this is not how the story ended. Because when Jesus conquered the grave and he rose from the dead, he made a way back to God for all of humanity. And this is the gospel. 
The word gospel actually means good news. And this is the good news, that because of God's unconditional love, no matter how far you think you are from God, because of the resurrection, you can still experience life with God. And so it was really this super simple message that Peter and John were speaking to a group of thousands of people in the open air. And and I just imagine this moment, it says that Peter was filled with the Spirit. And so he is preaching and teaching from the heart. He is pouring out this message of hope to this community. And, And we know that it was landing with this group of people that it was liberating them from the shame and the guilt that they were feeling because it said that on this day, 5,000 people responded to it. 5,000 people were now numbered among the people who believed in this message. And so for us, as we're reading this, we should assume that there was like this widespread spiritual awakening that was happening in this group of people. This group of people that had become so comfortable with injustice in their culture, were now looking to themselves and admitting to themselves that what they did was wrong and unjust, that it was a horrible crime, and they were turning to God. They were repenting of it. It was this beautiful, beautiful moment. But in the midst of it, we read, that some of the religious leaders of the land that day stepped in and they interrupted what God was doing among so many people in their community. And it says that they arrested Peter and John and they put them in jail and left them there overnight. And when you think about this group of people, don't think about spiritual leaders in our context, maybe pastors on social media that people love and their videos go viral where there is like this genuine sense of admiration For the person, when we think about these leaders, you have to think about a community of people that were governed by religious institutions. That means that their religious leaders were given legal authority over the people, and the leaders used their authority to silence the voice of the religious minority. Look at what it says. Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, it says, The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest, and they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Some of you may know the name Brian Stevenson. He started an organization in 1989 called the Equal Justice Initiative, and the goal of this organization was to help provide adequate representation in the judiciary system for people who were on death row. And one of the stories early on, one of the cases that he took early on, was the story of a man who had been arrested, put on death row, before he had ever gone to trial. It is a really bad habit in our culture and in our life to act on something that you don't understand. James chapter 1, verse 19 says it this way. He says, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. The only way that we could understand the actions of the religious leaders that day was to understand that they were operating and they were motivated by fear. They were afraid of losing their influence. And this is how Peter exposes it. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, 
Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Now, this was a rhetorical question, but the point is that he wanted to expose their motivation. They did not care about the man who was healed or about the miracle that was performed. All they cared about was the fact that they were losing influence and clout among the people. And so Peter continues to explain and respond to their question. He says, do you know how this man was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man that you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is coming at them so strong in this moment. He says, the person that you ordered to be murdered was the one who came to save the world. And when he was talking about Jesus right now, he was giving Jesus credit for this work like he had never given credit to any other Jewish leader in all throughout history. He said, salvation only comes through the power of Jesus. It wasn't Moses, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Isaac or Jacob or the prophets or King David. It wasn't going to be some political leader. It's not your culture. It's not a social influencer. It is only Jesus that we find the type of life that all of us truly long for. And Peter was saying, this is what this man found. We are only saved in Jesus. This is the response of the Council of Religious Leaders, Acts chapter 4, 16 through 20. It said, what should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. And so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. This is a perfect picture of what pride is. Even though these religious leaders were convinced that what happened through Peter and John, was a miracle from God. Instead of trying to support it, they tried to suppress it. Instead of promoting good news, they tried to silence it through fear. It says that they warned them to never say it again. Now, we don't know exactly what that warning looked like, but we can assume that there were some pretty serious threats tied to it. Because whenever we look at church history and the church was a religious minority, they always experienced high degrees of religious injustice and persecution. When we look at church history, we're actually told that 11 out of the 12 apostles were murdered because of their faith. Can you imagine being in the shoes of the apostles right now, living in a culture of people that have become really comfortable with religious injustice? Think about it from their perspective. Their leader, Jesus, was wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and tortured, and then eventually murdered. Then, as they were spreading a message of hope, they had committed no crime, and yet they were arrested and incarcerated. And now, as this council of men are presiding over this case, they are now being threatened to never speak of the name of Jesus again. And I imagine that these men are asking the question, how do we respond to this injustice? And I think that we're at a time in our culture and in our generation where there are so many people that are asking the same question. How should we respond to the racial injustice directed toward African Americans in our country? What do we do 
in light of this? I think that it's a really hard question to answer. But I do think that as we look at the response of Peter and John to the religious injustice that they're facing, it gives us a template for how we can respond to the racism toward African Americans that we see in our country. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? As we begin to ask ourselves the questions, what do we do in response to the injustice that we see in our world? One of the things that we can start with is asking ourselves the question, what does obedience to God look like for me? I really think, in a sense, that was the same question that the apostles were asking. They asked it in a rhetorical form, but the assumption was that their primary concern was to be obedient to what God was asking them to do and not what other people were asking them to do. And so I think that is our burden. That is what we are pursuing. God, how do you want us to respond to injustice like the murder of George Floyd? When we see patterns of racism in our system, how do we respond when there is a segment of our population that's been marginalized historically and currently because of the color of their skin? What does obedience look like for the rest of us? I think that we've been asking ourselves that question, my wife and I, and a few of the things that have really helped us to gain clarity about how to move forward in obedience in this season has been prayer. Prayer has been a huge part in helping us to align our hearts with God's heart. And one of the unique things about prayer is that when we begin to put out a request or we ask God to speak into a situation in our life that we're wrestling with, prayer helps to put that issue at the top of our minds or at the top of our hearts. And we have found that as we are praying about a specific issue, God will speak to that issue all throughout the day because we're constantly thinking about it. And it's at the top of our minds. And so we notice that when we pray, we seem to see and hear God answering our requests more frequently than if we don't pray. It's kind of like if you were looking to buy a new car, all of a sudden you start seeing that car all over the place. You start noticing it. And that's sort of what prayer does for us. It gives us the eyes and the ears to see when God is answering the prayer that we're praying. The second thing that has been really helpful for us is to go to Scripture to look at God's word and to try to understand what he says about this issue as much as we can. How does God see humanity? How does God want us to respond to a neighbor that's in need or a brother that's in need? And so that's been really, really helpful in helping us to come to some level of discernment about how we should respond to the injustice in our world. The third thing is we have really tried to educate ourselves we feel like if we're going to respond in a way that is honoring to God and honoring to our neighbor, we have to at some level understand the situation more than we have in the past. And so for us, that has been a really simple process for us to start gaining clarity about what obedience looks like for us in this moment. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you or how you ought to respond, but I think that if you considered praying, searching God's Word, looking at the Bible— and then beginning to educate yourself with either documentaries or books about racism toward African Americans in our culture, it is the beginning of, of understanding for all of us. But the second thing is really important as well, because as much as we know that it's important to know what to do and to know what the right thing is, it is so much more important that we are willing to have the courage to act on the right thing. So the second thing that we see 
in verse 20, it says, we cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and, that, and what we have heard. They said, we can't stop it. There are some things that once you've experienced, you can no longer go back to living the way that you once did because it changes the way, how you, the way you see the world. And the apostles were committing to acting on what God made clear was their path regardless of what it was going to cost them. They said, we're not going to stop doing what is right. And I think that this is a perfect model for where we're at as a church, that it is one thing to post about change, but it is a completely different thing to be willing to enact the change. Because what you know, like I know, is that change will never happen if we're not willing to talk about it, but change will not happen if we're not willing to act on it. But this is the problem with the way that so, much of, so many of us are processing injustice in our world is that oftentimes when we look at injustice, we see it as their problem. We see it as someone else's pain. We see it as someone else's suffering. But when we look at scripture, that's not how the Bible tells us to view the suffering of our neighbor. When they suffer, we suffer. When they're marginalized, we take a stand. When they're hurting, we're hurting. And so it is not other people's problem if there's injustice in our world. It is our problem. It is our responsibility to act in light of that. And I think that as a church, we have to have the courage to step into conflict and to stand for those whose voices are being muted in our culture. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to take a trip to Israel. It was an amazing experience. And part of the trip, we planned to go to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And I remember the whole experience was really powerful. We go to the museum and basically the exhibit is telling the story of how the Holocaust happened from the early policies and some of the early cultural changes that were happening in Germany all the way till uh, where you see, you know, six million people who had died in the concentration camps. And one of the things that stuck out to me most in this entire experience was when I was listening to the testimony of people who survived the Holocaust as they were telling what the policies began to do to their relationships with their German neighbors. Now, they were living in Germany, working and living as if it was their own country. And what was so powerful is they talked about how betrayed they felt when their friends who were German, their neighbors who were German, their coworkers, their business partners, who they felt such a close tie and relationship to, but they said when they started getting marginalized because of some of the policies in the country, their friends never stood up for them. Their friends never took a stand for them. One of my favorite quotes is the quote from Edmund Burke, and he says, the only necessary thing for evil to triumph is for good people to stand by and do nothing. And I think that that is the challenge of the church today in our culture. What we have to recognize is that there is an issue happening in our culture that is not right and is unjust. And what has become overwhelmingly apparent to me is that Racism is still a huge issue in our country. And it's not just an issue in the South, but it is an issue on the West Coast. It is an issue in California. It is an issue in a place as diverse as the Silicon Valley. And what I really believe is true about racism is that chances are it is true in your heart and my heart. We have to ask ourselves, do we treat people differently because of the color of their skin? 
Do you think about people differently because of their race? Do you value people to differing levels? Do you make assumption about certain ethnicities? I think that if we are being honest, most of us can, infer, can affirm at least one of those questions. And I think that in so many ways, this has exposed so much about who we are. Our silence on social media, our unwillingness to take a stand for our African-American brothers and sisters who are crying out, telling us their stories of injustice in their life, and yet we're comfortable with it. I feel like this has been something that I've had to really dig deep in my own life. And as a result, my wife and I have made some decisions to say we're not going to just know what the right thing is to do, but we're going to start taking some action. And so I want to share with you a few of the things that we said we're going to commit to as we want to be part of the solution of the problem of injustice that we see in our culture. The first thing is that we are committed to learning more about the nuances of racism by educating ourselves. Because we realize that so much of the racism that is being conducted in our country is not overt racism, but it's covert racism. It's racism that you can hide and cover up and oftentimes that you don't even know is there. The second thing that I'm doing is I'm asking God for forgiveness for the subtle and covert prejudices that exist in my heart. And I'm asking God to forgive me for any time that a joke was told and I didn't stand up or I didn't say anything about it or a comment was made that I just let pass by and didn't have the courage to stand up against. Number three, I believe that God wanted me to speak on the topic about racism in America towards African Americans. Today, I wanted to bring it to light. I wanted us to have the ability as a church to start tackling some tough issues and not to be afraid to address things head on. Because I think that if the church is not willing to take a stand in this moment, we are going to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. And so I wanted to talk about it. And it's an important issue for us. But one of the things I think is important for us to know is that just because we talk about this issue today does mean, doesn't mean that there aren't other issues that as a church we will address in the future. But today, in light of all that is happening in our culture, it is so important for us as a community of faith to have the courage and the grit and the toughness and the tough skin to be willing to address these issues with wisdom and humility. Number four, I believe that God is impressed on my wife and I to begin financially supporting a faith-inspired organization that promotes racial equality in our judiciary system. As we've been growing and learning and educating ourselves, um, we, we feel like we cannot just give our time, but if we really believe in being part of the solution, we want to give our resources to supporting a cause that we believe is actually making a change in our world. And number five, I really believe as we move forward in our church, justice has to be woven into the fabric of who we are. It has to be part of our culture because in so many ways, we serve a God who has been committed to justice since the very beginning. I don't know what God is leading you to do. And I'm not telling you that what we're doing is what you have to do, but I want you to have a picture of what is possible. And as we grow and we learn, we are going to make adjustments to our commitment to this cause 
because we know that this is just the beginning. But I think that what all of us can do is to begin to self-examine, to ask honest, hard questions about whether or not there is any amount of racism or prejudice that exists in your heart today, and to be willing to ask ourselves if we are part of the problem. I know that there are so many of us here today that have been weighed down by some of the conversation. There are so many of you that are listening to this right now that have experienced injustice in your life. And I just want you to know that you are not alone. This is hard. This is uncomfortable. This is not what any of us would have wanted. But I want you to know that you are not alone. One of the beautiful things about the God that we serve and who serves us is that he is a God that is not unaware of our pain. He's not unaware of our suffering. In fact, I think what is so beautiful about Jesus is that Jesus can share in our pain of injustice because there is no person who experienced injustice the way that he has. When he was falsely accused and convicted, tortured and hung on a cross. And as much as the apostles during that time would have looked at that moment as bad news, Jesus knew that it was going to be good news. That if he sacrificed his life on our behalf, he was creating a way for us back to God for all humanity. And this morning, if you have never stepped into that relationship, if you've never experienced what life is like with Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And all we have to do is to simply ask God to receive and to believe that God loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer in your heart with me. Go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for showing me your love by sacrificing your son knowing that only he could do for us what no one else could. That his life and his love could restore ours, could restore the brokenness that has defined our life in the past. Today, God, I want to receive you. I want to receive the gift of salvation by trusting in your promise. God, today I want to turn from everything in my life that is outside of your best for me. And I want to begin aligning my heart with yours so that I can experience love and peace and joy and satisfaction. Thank you, God. Amen.